Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. Looking around, just like, okay, well, I've been doing this for five years. It's been great. I've loved it. But also, this is not a sustainable lifestyle. This is not what I want my life to be. It's just it's working all the time. It's constantly stressed. And I think my anxiety has ever been as high as it has been the last, like, five years. Hedgehog Brewing was founded by Jonathan Harris and his brother Chris in April 2019, just outside of Austin, Texas. After homebrewing voraciously for years, they'd honed their recipes, harvested their own yeast, and set about making their unique mark on craft beer. They focused on fermenting beers with wild hill country yeast, with a core of their business in farmhouse beer. They also did well with their IPA. Jonathan echoes a sentiment we hear a lot on this show. Imagining recipes and brewing beer is rewarding. Running a brewery fucking sucks. Hedgehog Brewing pivoted repeatedly over the years. They had started as a distro only and then opened a public taproom in 2021. They realized that their nano system couldn't generate enough revenue, so they started contract brewing to select parts of their lineup off-site. Please enjoy this story of Jonathan's fight to find profitability as brewery for four years before finally hitting lights and shutting it down. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standard you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Danbury at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, Jonathan, I want to welcome you to the show. I want to welcome you for taking the time, taking the effort, and sharing what is obviously going to be a very interesting and uh, important story. I mean, this is your life, right? So thanks for coming to the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, I do. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So it's going to be, I've done, this is a little different. Obviously, being in Texas, you know, I kind of know your story. Legitimately, we were competitors for a few years. But I've taken all that and just pushed it to the side and pretend that I don't know anything. So we're going to start from scratch. I want you to just tell me, like, how'd you get started in beer in general? And, like, who were you? Who are you? I got started in beer as a home brewer. Initially, when I started getting into, like, you know, drinking and trying different alcohols, I really didn't like beer because I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Like Nine, ten years old, something like that? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Still but my older brother had gotten into, like, Belgian beers. I don't know. I was probably, like, 22, 23. He's like, dude, you have to try you have to try the Chimay. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. So he brought over, like, a Chimay Blue and cracked it. And I was just like, oh, my God, what is happening? This is not so sexy. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is ridiculous. So Belgian beer was kind of, like, my introduction into, like, after my good beer what set me on the path towards like you know love of beer after college moved i'm from austin but moved up to uh, portland oregon for a couple of years and then it was just impossible not to get into beer up there every new person we met you know they're like oh let's go to this brewery oh here's my favorite beer try this try this so got really really into beer and then i uh, was up there for a couple of years and then moved back in 2013 14 
and started like immediately homebrewing with my brother. And then it quickly went from like, you know, just kind of like fun hobby to like a little bit of an obsession. So we built like a little small brewery on his place, built ourselves like a walk-in, a barrel room. We were brewing way more beer than we should have been brewing, but it was fun. I've never asked anybody this, but why do you think that is? Like, I mean, I know people get into things and hobbies and, and they always take it further than it should, but you don't hear that that much about, I made a pizza once, it was great, and so I, I converted my entire fucking garage into a commercial pizza. Just, you know, occasionally they open a restaurant or whatever, but yeah. just, why is beer like that? Why are we so obsessed with going hard? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I think, Part of it is like in the back of your mind, you're like, I could do this. I could do this for a living. So there's like, it's the potential, even though most people, like even when I started, like did not think this was going towards the brewery area. But I think in the back of your mind, kind of like in golf when you hit one good shot and the rest of the day was terrible, <laughs> but that one good shot makes you want to keep coming back. It's like if you make one beer and like it's delicious, or if you're really creative and you start just thinking about ways you want to change it. And then, I don't know, it just hooks you really quick. And then there's always like, oh, well, maybe in the future I could do something. Or maybe I'll impress my friends or, yeah, or you just nerd out about it and find the thing that you're now a nerd about. Yeah, but I don't know. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? The example you gave is also funny because they get that same, a lot of people play golf, right? But um, almost none of them quit their job and go professional <laughs> for some reason. And you can drink when you play golf. So it isn't just the alcohol that makes you like that with beer. But I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely, it's exciting. There's, it's a, it's a cool mix of art and science. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Just the fermentation piece, the, you know, being able to yeah. come up with something completely new. It definitely had its moment. I, I don't know if we necessarily see that as much today as maybe we did a decade ago. Like, you know, when I got started, when you got started. So maybe that's part of it that it's, I don't, I don't know, just that was that moment, right? Zeitgeist of the whole industry that yeah. if you make one beer, you yeah. should go pro. I don't know, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I, I don't know anyone, like, all the people I talk to now, that like, like, oh, I used to homebrew. Oh, I homebrewed 15 years ago. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I haven't done, like, I don't know that many people that I meet now that are currently homebrewing. So, yeah, that is, maybe it was just also part of the, yeah, that time that you get into it. Yeah, so that's, we kind of took a little crazy, got into it, and then I've got an engineering background for the science aspect, uh, was super fun. Just got really into, like, water chemistry and just, like, learning and reading as much as and then what really what really did it for us is we started collecting because we tried to do a couple of hours uh, with like some pitches from White Labs or wherever. And they just like a year into the beer, nothing was sour. Like this wasn't very good. So I did some research on like stuff that this beer blog I was following, Matt Fermentation, stuff he was doing with collecting wild yeast. And then looked at like, you know, what Cantillon does and Jester King and just like trying to read up like that pro on that process. And so we basically did like miniature cool ship February of like 2015 collected. Like we had two collections, one in my brother's like yard, it was on Liberty Hill and then one out there like field. And those first beers we made with, with just like all that wild yeast were like those were like fantastic or, you know, for what it was. That just kind of like hit another level of like nerdum and like, <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. No, now I'm really into this. So we started, we took that yeast, that kind of took over most of our brewing because we just kept that strain going. So every like three weeks to a month and a half, we brew like a new beer and throw that into a barrel, throw it into, you know, the next thing. And we were experimenting with all different types of styles. And then it was fun watching the yeast, the strain evolve over time. So that's probably the time where it's like, oh, wait, maybe I do want to actually do this instead of just being a hobby. And you know, so things like, oh, we've got something unique. We did this ourselves. We collected, no one else has this. That kind of, you know, like... <laughs> There's no commercial pitches. It's all just from the air. This is awesome. And then from there, just like, okay, well, if we're ever going to actually do this, we need to really, like, really know what we're doing. 
hate putting something out there if I'm like not super comfortable or don't feel confident in like what I'm producing or what I'm making, even just like making food for people at you know my house or something like. I don't want to just like oh here's some you know random shit here you go eat it. The next like four years or so, we just like really just kept you know learning, reading. I helped out a couple of breweries anywhere I could, whether it's like bottling or just like cleaning, just doing anything. And then we were just brewing probably three to five times a month and just trying to just experiment as much as we could and get familiar with malt and hops and yeast and how they all play together. And then got to a point where we were feeling pretty confident. A space opened up um, in Cedar Park that had been where Swiss Deck started back in the day. And then there's been a couple of other breweries that like ran through there. And it was like super affordable. It was already set up. So we were able to just kind of bootstrap ourselves and get it going. So we got that lease at the end of 2018 and then opened our first years where we started releasing in April of 2019. Yeah. So okay. Kinda, I remember hearing about you guys before that, I guess. So it must have been the Instagram and stuff was already so There was the part that has nothing to do with the brewing aspect. So before we were working on the brewery, uh, my partner and I were working on Hedgehog Bottle Shop. So that was going to be just a bar with kind of basically what Witchcraft ended up doing in that first location or second location, I guess, where you've got, you know, a great selection of beer and bottles and then you have some on draft so people can come and get like, you know, both both aspects. Because I feel like that was a point in time too where, you know, if you could get KBS or something, they you know, Austin only got 10 cases of it a year. And I feel like that time period was like really when bottle shops were like starting to like hit the area. And living in Portland, they were everywhere. So I moved back. There's not a single one anywhere. It's just grocery stores. What if we did a store to dedicate? So that was like the initial iteration of Hedgehog was just going to be a place where we could do classes and teach people about beer and serve and sell beer. And then the brewing kind of ended up taking over. And at the risk of selling like the old guy, I definitely think those are the golden years of craft beer as far as just, I don't want to just say it was easier, but like everyone was excited in a way that they're just kind of not the same way anymore. But uh, there's still people out there oh, excited, sure. but not like that. Yeah, the the fandom has definitely become more of just like, it's just like something you do rather than something to freak out about. The cult of personality yeah. part's a little gone, but so yeah. you guys decided to move in this building. Were you only mixed culture at the time? Was that going to be the whole thing that it was? Our whole goal was always to do pretty much half and half, and that's how we ended up being. So, I mean, we were only a two-barrel brewery, so we had, I think, 16 wine barrels that we were running our farmhouse through. And then we had our stainless permanent for our non-farmhouse. So when we started, we were only doing distribution. The space wasn't really set up for anything on site. And those previous landlords that we had, they put it in, were not allowed to like serve on site there. I guess they had some issues with previous tenants. So we just did distribution. So we had one IPA and then two of our farmhouses bottles. Okay. And so that's kind of what we hit the market with, was those three beers. And then over the next six months, we added in some like rotational stuff, but try to keep those three main going. And again, um, I'm, I'm trying to yeah, pretend so I don't know anything about what you guys did, but what did it, wasn't it all yeah. 500 milliliter bottles too in the beginning? Yeah, so it was first, so our IPA was just in keg, so we didn't do any bottling of that or canning. And then our farmhouse, we did some kegs, but we were doing mostly bottles. So yeah, it was the 500 milliliter celebration like bottle style. We could get the carbonation levels up pretty high in those, which is really nice. And then it was a nice introduction like size because of our, our size like doing like six packs made no sense to mm-hmm. like that's you know we're like oh well we've got you know four cases of beer <laughs> two barrels you know it just didn't, didn't really fit so to get into more places and to have a, like a wider reach we went with the 500 milliliter and you know at that time the bomber size of the 750s were you know they're just expensive because a lot of beer and usually those bottles are 15 you know 30 dollars so we wanted a lower entry point too since we were new and small and 
no one has heard of us. We don't want to be like, oh yeah, you've never heard of us. Spend twenty five dollars on a giant beer, and if you don't like it, it's a lot of beer to pour. So yeah, we ended up with five hundred milliliters to start. We did that for the first, I think, two years we were in those bottles, and then we switched to sixteen ounce cans once we started into the contract court brewing and some other things to get our production up. So in the model, you you basically you move in this space. You're going to do a two barrel system exclusively distro self-distribution or did you go with a third party self-distribution yeah okay so you would have had to i mean (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) the goal of that space was really like our goal in getting the brewery started and getting that space specifically Uh, it was a thousand square feet you know it wasn't very big there was you know when we got it there was no chance for doing on-site so it was really just kind of like okay let's go here let's like sell our beer for one to two years out of the space prove that you know people like it and there's a market for this and then let's get into a new space, bring on some investors, and expand. So that was kind of the initial plan. Proof of concept, um, and then move up. So I have a, a thousand questions I want to ask you, but one of my yeah, favorite ones is always, uh, how'd you figure out your pricing? And if you haven't listened to the podcast a lot, we all did it the same way. I'm just waiting for the one guy who's like, did it differently, but... The pricing, like, I had worked in between, like, doing engineering and getting this started. I had... Uh, ran a bar so I could get some experience in like, you know, service industry. So I had a general idea for keg pricing because we were only uh, on site. We didn't have like canned stuff. So I had an idea of like where kegs were going for different styles of beer and like being a, a buyer, I was like, okay, when someone came in for that price, it'd be really hard to convince me to bring their beer in. But this range, you know, is generally like doable. So we just kind of like went off the market, like just kind of what other people were doing for our IPA. We were kind of mid to high probably for what people were doing at the time. Now our prices are pretty low comparatively. But uh, yeah, so that's how we did the kegs. And then the bottles, it was really just kind of like a feel. There weren't a lot of other people doing the same size and there weren't a lot of other people doing the same dial. So we were doing farmhouse and it was, you know, barrel aged, but we generally aged them two to six months. So they were a quicker turnaround time than a lot of farmhouse beers that, you know, go years, you know, a year plus. That kind of like, in my mind, it's like, oh, we don't have to charge as much because they're not sitting there as long. So we tried to like just hit a point that I just always thought of myself as a customer. I was like, if I go into a store, I hadn't heard the brewery, what price point am I okay getting it off? And then we'd look at that price, like, okay, I want to do like this bottle of the Peach Farmhouse. If it's sold for $7 a bottle, I think that's like a pretty, like, very approachable. People can get it and they're not just going to like, oh, it's a specialty beer that I can only get once a month. One of the price where people like farmhouse that you can still, you know, drink it on a regular. That's kind of how we did that. Then we take the price that we thought we wanted to sell it at and then run our margins to make sure we were still making money off of it. That's pretty much how everybody did it. What we find out is that as things change, unfortunately, that we get stuck in these pricing. And so yeah. definitely... There, there's definitely a better way to do it. And I did the same exact thing. And I keep, kept, would keep going back and like reworking the pricing and just being like, oh, uh, so-and-so brewery is this and I'm almost as good as that. Uh, maybe not as – and it just – yeah, at the end of the day, I, I needed to charge one and a half times what that brewery charged. Granted, the customer wouldn't pay it, but yeah. I couldn't make money otherwise. So Yeah, that's it's the hard thing because like, okay, well, here's what I want to sell, but can I make – money well if i don't pay myself then sure the margin like kind of works out but then you can't do that forever yeah so yeah it's definitely not a great stupid <laughs> all right so did you guys end up adding a tasting room later you had one at the end so was it a different space at that point or did you somehow add uh, expand from where you were so everything just got like nothing went how we wanted it to with that space that's brewery in general so the first year went pretty great and then the place got bought basically right after we signed our lease the space wasn't really built out for on-site we didn't, hadn't planned on doing that initially, so we just kept not doing it for, for the first year. 
And then the new landlord didn't care what we did. So we got to year one, started we're thinking about expansion. And then two weeks later, everything shut down with the pandemic. And so it's like, oh, well, I guess we'll just sit, sit back and figure out, like, are we even going to be around in, you know, three months? Thankfully, the, like, laws changed because we were brewery, not a brew pub. And in Texas, previous to 2000, in 2019, I think, sell beer to go. So thankfully, that law changed right before the pandemic hit. So beer to go got us through that next year where we were just like panicking because we still had like HP, but obviously all of our accounts and stuff were gone. So we spent a year of doing mostly just on-site like beer to go sales, which is the sign out on the road. And then once that started dying down, people started going back out. That's when we decided to go ahead and like open up the tap room to give us a little breathing room. So we ended up opening the tap room in 2001, two years after. Foreshadowing a little bit, but uh, did you also get new equipment or upgrade the system at all or just add the tasting room? So we just add the tasting room and then we added in a fooder pretty quickly. And then we got more fruiting fermenters for our farmhouse. We only had one initially, so you only did like basically one beer at a time. So to expand that, just started yeah adding like more equipment and then we started contracting work from another brewery so we'd go pick up the work bring it in and then so we'd be dumping our 15 barrel fooder or you know like eight barrels at a time instead of one to two barrels so that's kind of how we increased our production our farmhouse and then for our non-farmhouse beers we basically just stopped selling outside so we just were brewing everything just selling it on site margins gone the distribution's probably shit anyways at that point it's not even worth the effort for an IPA like just there's no yeah. there's no money in there unless were you able to charge something nope. ridiculous what were you charging your when you were distributing your IPA I guess it was only kegs a little bit better yeah yeah we eventually we started yeah last June we started actually just straight up contracting our IPA so we to get it back into the market. Again, we've been working with investors and like we're kind of expanding. So like, okay, well, let's go ahead and get our more of our beer out on the market. So we were contracting with Shell's uh, Brew in Austin and doing like 40 barrel batches of our IPA, which was a lot more beer than we'd ever made before. It was retailing for 16 or four packs. Bottles, the general price point. Yeah, that's a decent margin. Not not super great whenever you're contracting beer. Yeah, well, I mean we we made some money off of it, but yeah, the margins. I mean, we should have been like to actually make money. We should have been charging like twenty two, twenty four dollars a four pack. But try to get people to buy it. Yeah, there again, then the supply and demand issue. That if you have no demand for it, then it doesn't matter how much of it you have. It's almost worse. So I get that. You gotta you gotta find the yeah. balance. So wait, I didn't realize you guys were contract brewing. So I'm gonna definitely get into the details of that. But before uh, yeah, we take sure. a quick break and move forward, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, I guess, the lineup overall. Like, how did you pick? You said you had a kind of a farmhouse and a IPA out of the gates. And then, one, again, another mis- I would consider mistake that I made is that I brewed what I wanted to brew and what I thought was cool and what I was inspired to make. And that schedule, my retailers weren't always into it. My distributors were rarely into it. Customers mostly were, but uh, how did you decide what to make and how much of it to make, particularly in the, let's say, the first couple of years? Yeah, so we were in a pretty easy position by being only two-barrel brewery that we could just, like, you know, do kind of whatever we want. Like, worst case, you have two barrels of beer. So that gave us a lot of flexibility. The, the opposite side is that you're only having two barrels of that, so it's really <laughs> hard to make any money. It did give us a lot of flexibility. So we had a similar philosophy, which is kind of like, okay, I, I noticed anytime I try to brew beer for other people or a style I don't like, the beer never really turned out great because I didn't care about it. I mean, that's a little different, you know, as a professional or, you know, when you have a business, like you're caring about it regardless. But like back in homebrew days, it's like, yeah, if I don't care about it, I'm not just, it's not as a fun of a process. So 
our motto was just brew what we want to drink. It worked out for us. That was never really a problem because, well, also because the styles that we want to drink, they weren't anything too crazy. And if it was too crazy, then, we, you know, we just fell on site at the brewery. So the first couple of years, I think we probably actually would have done the West Coast IPA instead of the New England if it was up to, you know, what we wanted to drink more at that time. Hazy's were all everybody was drinking so we knew we needed one of those yeah we started with the hazy and then the farmhouse was like what flavors do we want so we really love peaches in that beer so we did a peach one and then just did one to showcase the fermentation so just the lightly dry hop version and then as we went along just kind of like oh what sounds good what do we want to play with and again because of our size we were able to just like kind of just play around so we started introducing more for like we did a mango and habanero one that's actually prepared to release our farmhouse because like people are gonna think this gimmicky i mean like i love this beer it's something we've been brewing for ourselves for a long time but like peppers and beer like i very rarely want to order that from someone else i had no idea how that was going to go we went ahead and did it my brother was pretty adamant he's like no let's do this like, all right so we did it and that ended up being like a big hit and worked out really well for us and then yeah after that it was like you know uh, there were some, some uh, mustang grapes growing across the road from our brewery so I went to pick those, and we made it yearly. We make a beer out of that. And then it was just kind of, yeah, just like, okay, so we know we want to use some fruit sours. What fruit sound good? And then we'd go with that. And then if people bought it, we'd, you know, maybe turn it into one of our rotational. If it didn't work out how we wanted to, then it was two barrels of beer. So, yeah, that's pretty much how we did And then we threw in some barley wines and imperial stouts, which, again, being two barrels, it was pretty easy to sell. Where I talked to other brews, like, we do the barley wines? Like, yeah, 15 barrels. We can't sell 15 barrels of barley wine. Like, yeah, I, I get that. Just kind of like, oh, well, this is what we want to try for it. Makes a lot of sense. Let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to hear a little bit about sort of the growth years and how that worked. But right away when we first come back, I want to hear what you think you did wrong in the beginning, what you could have fixed so that everyone listening can learn from our mistakes. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right. Thanks for sticking with us. Again, I want to hear a little bit about what you think now looking back and you know, we'll get more in detail in it. But with some of that startup times, maybe, you know, we always have to make sacrifices. Everybody wants to have a $3 million brewery, but you've got 20 bucks and you got to figure out how to make it work. But so not in the sense of like, hey, I wish I had more money. Sure. Yeah, you did. But what what did you do that maybe wasn't a mistake, but definitely held you back? You think that had you done it differently, it would have made a difference? Yeah, for sure. I think about this a lot. I mean, it was like a constant thing that basically that's been on my mind the last like five years. Just like, okay, what would I do differently? And you're trying to think, you know, as you're going through like, okay, well, what do we need to do differently in the next spot? If we expand, what, you know, always thinking about. So some of the, the main things, it's like we're definitely underfunded, which is super 
challenging because it basically means for us, we had enough brew to get the equipment and get it open, but then not enough money to hire anybody, not enough money to have account, not enough money to have pay anyone to help you do anything, basically. So all the time I'll be like, oh, why don't you get someone to run your social or why don't you do these events? I'm like, I don't have the brain space to do literally anything. I'm working like 60, 80 hours a week. Like, I go to work, I come home, I sleep, I go to work, I come home, I sleep. Like, I can't even think about it. So I think the biggest thing is just, like, being underfunded didn't allow, it kind of, like, gets you stuck in a rut. You're working so much just to keep things moving and just to keep things going that you don't have, like, mental capacity to even think about expansion, think about growth, think about, like, all the things that when you're getting started, you're like, oh, yeah, six months, we'll start working on this this point we'll do this and this is how like we'll go talk to investors here and we'll reach out to these people and then you get into it and you're just like i'm just trying to breathe <laughs> like that's all like that's literally i just am trying to keep my head above water and not like die from panic attacks even you know even now i'm like oh maybe in the future like i'm not opposed to never doing being a part of a brewery again as like something that i own but like i have no interest to do something where like money reserved to pay people to have full staff to cover expenses for a while to like not be stressed out it's it's challenging when you are doing yourself and bootstrapping it's fine to do it you know i was totally fine doing it for like a year two years but sometimes that's what you need to do and that's your only option which uh, was for us but then you know if things don't work out exactly right or they're not perfect then you know little things throw you off well and you guys obviously out of the gates you dealt with not the best scenario in the sense of opening you had one kind of solid good year to make your nut get up there get the brand recognition and then obviously COVID happens but what um what were some of the wins the first year did it grow like were you month over month struggling with that two barrel system to meet demand did that kick in like six months 12 months like how did it look for you on the growth in the beginning the part that it, like allows me to sleep at night now and not feel terrible was the beer was always good and was never a problem. So we maxed out our production, like everything full constantly six months in. Two barrels, it's not that hard to do, so that's not a brag. It's really not that hard. But it felt like a huge accomplishment because I was the only full-time person. And then my brother that I started with, he helped out at night on weekends. I mean, he was there all the time, did a lot of paperwork. He did a lot of the applications, you know, the, you know HEB and stuff, which is, you know, a lot of just time. But him and his uh, partner, both lawyers, have their own thing. So they, like, be there all the time. So just to been doing it basically as a one and a half person and getting into HEB that was like that felt super awesome especially growing up in this area it's like the grocery store you all have like I've been going to my whole life and then to walk in the back and then see our beer on the shelves and then it's do well and then you know go to an HEB and someone's like oh yeah the the beer buyer from that place they were telling me we got to bring y'all in and so having you know the recognition from bars and from the buyers at restaurants and grocery stores, it definitely felt really good. Like, okay, yeah, so I thought we did a pretty good job. I feel like my palate's pretty good, but actually seeing, like, the reception from consumers, that was, like, a huge win. Just because, you know, especially when you're starting out, this is the first time you've professionally gotten it out there, and for the reception to be received so well, that was that was a huge win. But then we quickly got into, like, all right, so we've maxed out how much beer we can do, especially with, you know, how many people we have here, but also we're too busy to even, like, talk to people about expanding. Okay, we have to focus on that, and then, you know, everything shut down. That just getting it out there, doing fight nights and getting to talk to customers, and then, you know, there was a bar in um, Cedar Park that, like, our IPA was their best seller for, like, a whole, like, six months or whatever. It was super cool. So those, like, little things were definitely like, kept you going. 
I think that's a lot of why we get into the industry and and why we stay there uh, as long as we do anyways. So in a sense, you didn't necessarily have cores, right? You kind of got to brew what you wanted and have some fun with it. And my experience that evolves as the brewery stays around longer and you start having things people expect from you and things that you know will sell. Did you eventually end up having some even core-ish type styles you said you contracted i assume that's where that why that happened but yeah so there were three beers so, so the first three we, we released those we tried to have available year-round so those would be our like our three core beers basically and then everything else was rotational so being the size where we weren't able to always have those available to, to distribute but that was our goal so the hazy ipa the Peach Farmhouse and the Dryhouse Farmhouse, those those were our, like, four beers that, you know, most people expected to be able to get. Our IPA especially, that's especially those, like, bars and stuff, that's the one people, like, even we started putting other things out, they're like, okay, but can we get Optimism? Can we have that beer? So those three, we just brewed Optimism. The Optimism is probably a great example. It's a hazy IPA, you're making four kegs at a time. So how did you do that? I've actually, so far, the most amazing story I think I've ever heard is Dead Horse that had like a five or a seven barrel system and they just hung on to it forever. And by the end, they were brewing 24 hours a day, seven days a week on this fucking thing <laughs> instead of getting <laughs> But it made sense. I think they made money doing that and they probably didn't when they, extend. who knows? But anyways, point yeah. being, how many times did you have to brew this thing? Because the fermentation tank space is always the issue, but. Yeah, so we had three, three stainless fermenters for it. So we were brewing basically that beer once a week and then you know our farmhouse two two to three times a week usually so it was just our three for most of the year those three fermenters were full of that beer so as soon as one went out other fermenter then the next batch went in that same day and we just kept going that way so yeah every week week and a half or so we'd have a new batch during this period you're growing you're getting new bars you're the best seller at least one of them you're doing fantastic you're in HEB which Next question I was going to ask is you said that you were not only in HEB, that you were doing well. So your farmhouse bombers were doing well at the grocery store in 2019? Yeah. I mean, so I don't have anything to compare it to as far as like, (laughs) I don't know what Jester King was doing. I don't know what y'all were doing. I don't know how many cases Rough House was selling. I think those are like the ones in similar styles and models at the time. But based on the feedback, yeah, it was doing well. For our size, you know, we had about 12 different HEBs and those kept us like out of stock at least the beer buyers said our stuff was doing well again i can't for us it was well i don't know like we were 15 barrel brewery that like we probably need to sell a lot quicker and that bottle size i think kind of limits how much you can so we would have to get a lot more down but yeah so at least for us from my perspective it, it did well like people kept ordering <laughs> they kept ordering they said it moved well it wasn't like oh the beer's not moving we're not gonna buy you again but uh, it wasn't like oh man your beer's crazy demand Everybody, you know, is selling out, you know, in two days. But for our size, it was going well enough for us. So COVID happens. What did you do during COVID? I, obviously, I was in Texas too, so I kind of know a little bit about how when we're open and we're not. But that first six months was completely shit. And then it was just sort of catch and go after that. But what did you guys do to stay alive during that period? Year to go is really the only thing that kept us going. The first month, you know, like, couldn't really leave your house. So we just kind of sat around, pulling my thumbs, stressed out. And then HEBs and retailers, started kind of picking back up but it was probably like everything was moving about half as fast as it normally did it was the online ordering and people just picking up not actually going into the grocery stores anymore and our stuff wasn't available on online on the grocery stores website we didn't have our beer in that so those were slowing down quite a bit we still distributed just you know about half as much as we did before and then the beer to go is what really you know 
know, the margins on that were so much higher too. And that was the first time we'd done any like on-site stuff. So we were just playing around. We're doing just whatever kind of beer we wanted, selling it in crawlers. People were like ordering it through the week and just come picking it up on like, you know, Saturdays and Sundays. And so that worked out surprisingly well for us again because we were small it wasn't we were trying to get you know two beer to go for you know 15 30 barrel four batches of beer but yeah that kept us busy and then kept us like paying rent that that, that got us through through that year it was tough but it worked so you said at some point that that was after that is when you decided to bring in the canning line and add a tasting room so was that part of that expansion plan like you guys had just sort of licked your wounds after covid said hey shit was growing before we think it's going to grow again let's get some new investor money or what was the plan like how did you pivot at that point yeah it was kind of like okay well things are still a little weird it'll probably be a minute before we get into this space but i need to be able to pay myself because you know i'm in this now however many years so it's like okay well what can we do right now in the interim to bring in some money to expand you know our our revenue so that's when we decided to do the tasting room open that up we kind of like rearranged the stuff we kind of just like thought through our model and so it was really like all the stuff that we did and since the pandemic started was basically just like patchwork stuff like just band-aids mm-hmm. trying to like get us through until we can make the next like leap and get out of that space so we built ourselves our own like forehead can filler we got a little can steamer and then we just kind of like you know bootstrapped the tap room built ourselves a little fence there's fitting tables out there I mean, we were trying to make it nice, not like, you know, somewhere people would actually want to go. But, uh, yeah, it was just kind of like, okay, what, I got to do something. Yeah, like, I got to gotta pay myself. I got to get some time off. I got to take a break at least once a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so what, what can we do? So, yeah, we opened up the, the tap room in April of 2021, had some staff running that, and then I was also, you know, there all the time, too. And then we hired an assistant brewer. But like a month, month or two after we opened the tap room. I mean, it started off with a bang for, you know, our size and stuff. So we like got swamped again immediately. And it's like, I can't manage this by myself. So, and my brother had to take a step back basically partway through pandemic. It's just circumstances outside of control. He had to kind of like take, take a step back from what he was contributing. So then that put even more stuff on me. So we ended up hiring a person. That was fantastic, but then you got another person like, oh, we can do more now. And then, so I just created more work for myself. And <laughs> it was really great to not be working by myself, but uh, yeah, it didn't really solve the problem that I thought it would. How did the tasting room contribute, I guess, financially into your overall model? So you, you had primarily been a distribution business and then did a little bit on site during COVID or probably a lot on site kind of during COVID, but then that yeah. for everybody sort of died off and people would still do it, but you're, you know, 10% of what it was at best. But yeah. I would think having been open year and a half, two years, selling beer around the market and no one could come visit you, all of a sudden you open up the doors and say, I got a chair, come sit, that you'd just be fucking swamped. Was it pretty lucrative? Did it wind up being 20% of your business, 70% of your business? What was that tasting room like? Yeah, it it was, uh, especially when we got started, it was probably like 80, 85% of our business. So we were only open on the weekend. Our space doesn't really allow to be open and brewing and doing like breweries. We have one sink and a hand washing sink, you know, but there wasn't really space or time to like, you know, be serving and be doing the brewery activities. So we were only open on the weekends. But yeah, we were pretty slammed the first two, three months. We opened in April while the weather was nice. You know, April was great and we had food trucks out and then it got into like July and then you're in a hundred degree weather. We only had outdoor seating and fans and umbrellas only get you so far. And then it was hard to get food trucks out. 
And then everything just like definitely started like slowing down after that point. So it was a great, great start. And then uh, just didn't really have the infrastructure to keep it a place to really like be popping at the same level. After that, it was like fine, you know, it was like it, it served its purpose, but it's just, it's really tough in Texas being only outdoor seating with no food truck and uh, no space for kids, especially being in like Cedar Park where mostly families. It was just, it's just a constant struggle trying to figure out how to get people, what you can do to like bring people out when they can go down the streets inside. Well, in your defense, I just interviewed Mockery um, in Denver maybe two weeks ago. They were also too heavily reliant upon outdoor seating per the owner. And so I don't know if it matters where the fuck you are. You just need an air conditioner and the seats inside. I think at the end of the day is the message. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. True. True. I mean, for consistency, right? Like, otherwise, at some point, you've got to just plan on burning some months and being like, okay, I can make all my money in eight months, seven months, whatever. And I just think yeah. that that is highly improbable. And, and not only that, it's just inconsistent if it rains, if there's a hurricane in the Gulf. Like, I don't know, there's a million things that could happen, yeah. but yeah. So I would hope you'd back that up. That's the lesson. Don't have outdoor seating. <laughs> yeah. Don't rely on outdoor seating as, as the only source that's not good. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah, your business model needs That's to have indoor seating. Oh, yeah, for sure. You yada yada over something that um, is not a small thing. So let's go back, back this up in reverse. Yeah. You, you built your own fucking canning line? Like, what? Come on, dude. Like, that's not a small thing. Well, I mean, like, it, it goes by to us, you know, doing, you know, two barrels at a time with our farm, you know, four barrels in a day trying to can through, stuff like that. So I just, like, was looking up, like, okay, what can we do? Because we've been hand, like, the, like, just the, homebrew Blickman guns or whatever the first six months to a year with our with our bottles and then I just was always researching trying to find like what because you know look at cane lines like 25,000 for like you know a small little tabletop thing that like barely did more than what we were doing I was like well I can't afford that so there was a cidery up in Portland that posted they built their themselves like a little forehead filler counter pressure and uh, they put the, the plans online and so I looked at that. I was like, yeah, I can build that. It was two days of work and $500. And then we had a forehead filler. Very manual, nothing automated. But yeah, it worked. And we just bought, you know, a little hand steamer and went from there. Okay. So <laughs> extremely manual, but made it work. And yeah. at your level, your scale, it's going to be fine. But I would have yeah. to imagine, yeah, and we'll go into this part. So I'd have to imagine that as yeah. we grow, that that becomes a curse as much as anything because you wind up, you're going to fill those cans and they'll be sold in like a half of a minute. Like there's no way that you can build, yeah. make enough that way. Yeah, for sure. It immediately got you like, oh, well, yeah, we can. And then we saw that week and we have to wait for the next batch of beer to be ready. And then it's also because it was so manual, like you could do it with two people, but three people is way better. So then we have to like schedule around get a third person in between me and our brewer and you know getting someone else and it definitely was probably more of a pain than anything like you got more people drinking our beer got you know <laughs> our price point for cans was able to go down because they were so cheap compared to bottles yeah so it was it was definitely a blessing of course yeah we were constantly out of stuff especially when we were trying to like rotate you know we'd have our three main beers but we were mostly doing we weren't really doing our IPA still it's mostly just our farmhouse but yeah just could never keep up and then it's exhausting work and you know pain in the ass to do and so eventually we decided to like go ahead another band-aid was like okay well what if we start contracting this year and getting more of it out there and so then you know after a year or so we ended up you know switching over to that for most of we still did our farmhouse up until we closed through our our you did that in-house and contracted out the others yeah okay well so you probably don't know this but contract brewing has become sort of the, the the only hill i'm willing to die on i 
I think that not contracting is a terrible idea for most breweries, particularly startup breweries. And even if you're a brew pub, I do not want to hear this argument that you still have to have a brew. No, you don't. It's stupid. But anyways, let's take a quick break. And we come back, I want to hear the specifics of this contracting because I also have a buddy. Yeah, yeah. I guess he still owns a cidery in Austin. He may not by the time I post this. And uh, he was contracting as well. He had a different experience maybe. And so I'm curious to control contrast them. So let's, let's take a quick yeah. break. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewerydirect at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right. Now that my wife has some shoes from the commercials, I want you to tell me about contracting. So, A, this is not a small decision. And I think let's talk about two pieces of it. One, deciding to do it. And one of them is that because of the fact you guys are small brewery, you've got people coming in that see you, you're working the bar, they know you, you're... You know, there's a hedgehog on the label, but it's basically you and your brother that, you know, in the beer, they know that. There's an authenticity piece that people argue with me all the time, that contract brewing is not authentic. It isn't, you know, whatever. Did you have any of these existential crises in trying to decide whether or not to contract brew? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's terrifying because our label and our name is on it, like not have the same control over it. It was definitely like, I'm not naming people, but there's like definitely some people because we put a thing out like oh yeah we're looking at contracts and you know we heard back from several breweries and there's somewhere i'm like no there's no way you're gonna touch our beer <laughs> like yeah this is not gonna happen because yeah because if i don't trust the quality of your beer like enjoy it i don't trust you to make my beer in a way that i'll enjoy there's just that was definitely a consideration for well, sure in texas you have to put their time. name on the label too right wouldn't have to it has to say brewed for by yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's, yeah, that's yeah, a legitimate exactly. concern. It is, too. Also, yeah, there's definitely like, okay, well, what is the general perception of, of this brewery, too? Even if I think they do a fine job, but then, you know, generally people don't like their beer or mm. don't think it's great, then, yeah, now their name's on our can. So we did two types of contracting. The first type we did was just work contracting, so it didn't go through the normal contracting thing because they weren't packaging or fermenting or anything. We just went, they basically produced work for us. So we went, picked it up in tote, brought it back, fermented it on site. That's an area that I think is underutilized because you can have your own fermenters, you can have your own stuff, you can have all your control on you know the cold side and fermentation and dry hopping, all that stuff, and just get someone else to literally just produce the sugar for you. Um, you still have a lot more control over it that way. So when we did that, we did that with our farmhouse. We got a 15-barrel fooder. We got a lot of wine barrels. So we were doing that before we started contracting out our IPAs. That went pretty well. Mostly carrot and that beer was from our fermentation anyways. So the base work, I wasn't too worried about someone else just like, you know, screwing that up for us. So we have pretty good. We had one batch that went a little weird and that, and, you know, not having control. I don't know exactly what happened. Even that, there was, you know, one of the batches we did where it was like, I, I, I don't know what happened. Uh, we did all the same stuff on our side, but the beer is not the same. That stuff definitely, definitely happened. Was it just a wine tote and then on a trailer or something? How'd you get it from one brewery to the next? Yeah, the, uh, we got like 332 of the 330 gallon. They're just like, 
uh, water toads, basically. They've got the metal cage around them, mm-hmm. top port, and then the bottom port. So we just fitted those with tri-clamp, you know, fittings and stuff. Just drive them. The first couple times, did it on a trailer. We were carrying 20 barrels. It was generally 18 to 20 barrels of work on a trailer was terrifying because it's like sloshing around and uh yeah that was we did that like four or five times and like it's just it's terrible and then i started just like renting a box truck and throwing them in there and that was that was way easier if anybody's listening they want to do this get a box truck rent a u-haul truck do something and get it inside and it'll, it'll be way better than yeah so we do that go pick it up as soon as they're done brewing knock out into the into the toast drive them over and go directly into our barrel that's how i used to get my 350 gallons of pickles used to the brewery. Big old toad in the back of the trailer. Oh, oh nice, nice. Back in the old days. So, okay, so this that was easier. You just basically contracted work production and then bought yep. work, finished it at the brewery. And that was yep. solely for the mixed culture program? So you're filling the food or the barrels? So like yeah, we only had them producing one base beer because most of our farmhouse stuff, our mixed culture was all just a similar, the same base, and then we would treat it differently post, you know, primary so yeah that's what we did there and then the next level uh, about a year after we started doing that um again we were like okay so we're looking at expanding talking to investors we were working on like finding locations but we still needed to like you know needed to, a way to pay myself and to add you know add some revenue so like okay well let's start contract brewing we narrowed it down to a couple brews picked one that i really their equipment was incredible they got a lot of control over what they do so and then after talking to them felt pretty comfortable they could do what we wanted and if the you know the first batch worked out pretty great they were super easy i think that's important is finding people that you that are easy to work with and are willing to let you dictate how things go they had some processes that were different than ours like times the whirlpooling times this with our ipa you know most of our bitterness was coming from whirlpool hop so the times that those fit in there were pretty important so anytime i'd be like hey can we actually do this instead of this they're like yeah sure we'll do that and then it's like oh actually this is what y'all do but can we do this for this beer sure this is what you want and they were like very accommodating and would just kind of do whatever we asked that relationship worked out pretty well they packaged it they canned it packed it did all that for us and i just go pick it up and sell it so there's a lot of different ways to price that to give you an example I, I mentioned the my buddy cider boy he uh he was paying yeah. like i don't know like three bucks a case something like that and he just lost that supplier he's looking for somebody else and then it's going to be dramatically more expensive like 3x that to find somebody else to do it you know build about with equipment in the facility he had his own equipment yeah, obviously you can bring a, a brewer in if you want you can buy a fermenter and own the space you can there's a million ways to do that how did you guys decide yeah. on not only the price but like a price that would work for you based on your retail price if this was like a business model that like this is where we're moving and we're like we're going to contract during this how we're going to be making money this is where the brewery is going then we would have been a little bit more aggressive with pricing but since our spot was like hey we're expanding our name expanding our brand at this point i think we've been in business for three and a half years or something so it's not like we were a startup but because of our size a lot of people still don't know who we were so you kind of feel like a startup so we priced it basically like similar way we did before it's like okay what are people actually going to spend money how much can we charge that people will still buy this and we went off that so it, you know, ended up being like the $16 for back. Our margins were about, eh, they were all right. You know, we lost, you know, 20, 25%, you know, versus us doing it ourselves. But it was enough for our small situation because I was delivering, selling, doing all of it. I'm like, yeah, okay, this will, this will pay my salary. Well, but so this uh, would so be the argument, right? 25% of cost was eaten up by having them do it, but that included labor? Yeah. 
rent equipment, right? Like, does that include the, yeah. the ingredients yeah. or did you guys buy the grains and ship it to them? We bought the grains. So yeah, it was equipment, storage, packaging, and then we bought the cans. We bought the, so all that in basically we, yeah, we, we gave up 20, I, I have to look at the exact numbers. They were 28, 30% for their labor, their storage space, their equipment, you know, packaging it all, cleaning kegs, doing all that. So I always say, like, don't let the numbers scare you until you've run in a spreadsheet, right? Like, so I don't oh, know what yeah. all of those things would cost, but I know that a $20,000 tank may, and you need three of them to be able to run consistent outflow. I, it may not have been a bad investment, I guess is my point. So Oh, no. I didn't leave the contract team being like, this doesn't make sense. It definitely made sense. It's just because your margins are a little bit lower than what we were doing before. You just, you know, you just need to produce a lot. Mm-hmm. Because distribution, your margins are already low. Now, if you're just selling this off site, you know, it probably doesn't matter as much. But since all this was getting, you know, distributed, those margins are already small. And then now you're cutting into that. Uh, still worked for us. Still was able to pay myself. Definitely worked out. It's just, yeah, there's just a lot of considerations. Like, do you have to pay a salesperson? Who's distributing it? Because if we went through a distributor, because we're like, now we have 40 barrel batches of beer. So I talked to some distributors and kegs would have been, we would have broken even off. So we'd be making literally zero dollars after the distributor took their their cut. It was like, well, this isn't even worth it. Like, there's literally no money coming back to the brewery. That's one of the reasons we ended up continuing to self-distribute. That is consideration because if you're going to contract brew and have someone distribute it for you, then you're just like, you're literally not making any money, at least depending on the price. So, yeah, you have to charge um, more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to make money. You just have to charge a lot more and then convince a lot of people to buy very expensive beer. But yeah, there's the considerations of contracting. So like just figuring out what your costs, your costs are for people, delivery, sales, and then just figuring out, you know, where your break even point is and what you think you can do. But like, it's, I think it's definitely viable. I definitely consider just shutting down our space and just doing distribution. I was like, I can do it by myself. I'll just have someone else through it and I'll go distribute and sell it. But I hate selling and I realized I hate my life if I, <laughs> that was what I, you know, did. So it's like, yeah, it's not worth it. Even though the money might have worked out, wasn't, wasn't something I was, willing to do yeah i don't i don't really know anyone personally and i know there are some out there but i don't know anyone personally who got in this industry to get rich getting into it and then winding up with a job that you hate like why would you do that you could you probably make more money somewhere else doing something that you hate less so it's just oh yeah absolutely yeah at that point they're like what am i doing for i'm not brewing yet i'm literally just a salesperson now like no <laughs> yeah you can sell way more lucrative shit than the 150 dollar kegs if you're trying to get commission yeah, for sure so in a sense, like when did it start to turn? COVID's over, you're still investing in growth, you go to a, a contract brew situation so that you can produce more beer, and then at some point, what, did the market change or did, did everyone just stop? Oh, wait, I don't put words in your mouth. What, what happened, yeah. Jonathan? What the hell happened? It's a, it's a very similar thing for every little band-aid we try to do. So we try to do the tap room. It works great, but again, we're bootstrapping it. So, you know, it's, you know, it's all outside. We're awesome. And then over time, the weather, food, and amenities kind of like that takes into it. And then, like, oh, we'll start canning. We'll do that ourselves. And like, oh, this works great for a minute. But now to actually keep up, we have to be canning all the time. And then there's about two of us here, so we also need to brew. So eventually the labor and time ended up making that, you know, not feasible. And then you get into contracting. And the first two or three months worked great. I uh, got back into a lot of bars we were in originally before the pandemic. And then... It just basically, the thing that turned for us with that specifically, which is very similar to what turned for like every little thing along the way, was just lack of manpower time. In my mind, I was like, okay, well, if we're not brewing optimism on site, 
that'll free up a little bit more time for me to go sell and distribute the beer. But realistically, it didn't free up more time. And there's still a bunch of stuff to do with the brewery just to keep that running and to keep the tap room running and then doing the beers that we need to do for the tap room. The first, you know, month I was able to do about three days a week of, you know, selling and distributing. And it was great. Went through the beer quick and it was, you know, it was like, oh, this is working out awesome. And then more like requirements of the brewery happened. And then I basically by started in July. By December, I think I was only down to a half a day of selling a week is like all the time I had. And at that point, I couldn't sell it fast enough to make it worth it, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's like it wasn't an issue of like people not buying the beer. Whenever I could actually get out and sell it, people bought it and did great. It was just literally a lack of time. So we needed to... If we wanted to have kept it going, it was like, okay, well, we need to hire an actual salesperson and we need to hire someone who can sell and distribute. So it just basically came down to me thinking I could do more than I could. <laughs> Maybe not knowing what you didn't know until you got in there, too, is part of it. So it does sound sure. like, in a sense, that you'd be freeing up time because you're not tied to your brew house yeah. for eight hours while you're trying to make that IPA. But So at this point, the biggest problem becomes that you're only one dude and you can only do so much. What are those conversations yep. with your investors and your partners look like? Are you considering hiring somebody and or investing in infrastructure, larger facility at this point? Like, what are some things that you thought about as plans A, B, C, and D? Yeah, I, there were a couple options we were working through with investors. One was to just really start expanding the contract brewing. So add in more beers and we'd already start working on label approval for a couple other ones. And like, okay, so we're going to start having them do more beer for, for us. We'll do larger batches. We'll hire a salesperson. And then we'll either sign with the distributor or hire a part-time driver. Were there specific styles yeah. or types of beers that you were going to make that you thought would be more universal or it would sell better? Or is it just adding yeah. SKUs in general? No. So these were, so the contract and no one's really going to take on sour stuff in their, in their brew houses and programs and do it canine. So I know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like you're familiar. Yeah. So it was. Our IPAs are what we originally started contracting. So we were going to add a couple different IPAs in. So that's just our main one optimism. We were going to add in a couple different varieties. And then we're looking at adding in the Hellas and the recipe that we've been bringing at the, you know, at our own space for a while. And then adding in like one of our Belgian blondes that does really well. So yeah, I was going to be adding in different styles of beer than we currently had in the market and ones that are a little bit, a little bit more popular people just drink regularly some volume based okay that would have been adding beers hiring a salesperson and growing that way that was one option what was the one of the other ones the other option was really just trying to get a new space as quick as possible and then we i mean i'd gone through probably 15 different scenarios okay if we get this kind of space this is the way we can do it do this or this or this we do this we can do this (laughs) <laughs> like it was just like okay well if we get this space we'll just start contracting work again so we'll get you know three 15 barrel fermenters we'll just contract work we won't buy a brew house to start we'll use our two barrel system just to produce like one off that place then we're saving ourselves two hundred fifty thousand dollars and so there were a lot of different scenarios that we played with and so that was the other goal it's like okay can we just keep going along enough to get into a new space and then that's basically the scenario we ended up going with at this point too being in it for four and a half five years and then the years it took getting it started before we opened it just like it ended up i guess i'm jumping ahead a little bit but after going through the options and thinking through what was the most viable we ended up deciding to just try to find a new location and do mostly on site with a little bit of distribution if we had access 
Okay. So the pivot was going to be leave the lower margin product, go sell stuff over the bar, maybe hire some more yep. bartenders, but you know they're dramatically less expensive than a salesperson that's commissioned and has travel costs. If you're going to pay more in rent, you have to renovate the building. So you would have had to take on more money, yep. right? Yeah, it would, be, it would have been a significant more bringing in more money from investors. But the long-term approach seemed a little bit... The one thing that scares me about just contract brewing for distribution as a long-term goal is like shelf space, market, competition. Like there's, what, 15, 20 new breweries distributing in Texas every month, it feels like. It's just kind of like, okay, so if we do this, our beer is selling well, but also it's just like it's so time-consuming selling to bars. There's just so many things that go into it that as a long-term strategy didn't seem very viable. As a short-term thing, it worked. And then talking to some other breweries to distribute along and far outside of Austin, they were just like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Kind of looking at the viability of like long-term, where do we want to go? Again, part of it's like, what do we get into this for? We want to be able to brew beer, have space, serve people. So just going the contract route is kind of like, again, we're kind of in a different business model than where we want it. A soul-sucking corporate business model? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get that. So when I say I think that contracting is the right thing to do, I, I believe that having a tasting room and still contracting would be the way to do it. Not necessarily going to distribution, but there are some advantages there too. If you're contracting, you could have your contract guy put a pallet together, some distributor, some work could pick it up. But uh, that's becoming less and less of a viable concern anyways. But back to the plan, everyone agrees. The solution is the way to keep yeah. Hedgehog alive and growing is to get a new space. And this is 2021, yep. you guys decided that, or like 20? No, this is, so this is... 22, maybe? 2022. We're going to take a quick break, so we have one section yep. left. And when we come back, I want to hear why that didn't work, and uh, obviously where you're at now, and like what happened. So we'll take a quick break, we'll be right back. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, Y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender post. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. Okay, last and final segment. This is the one that we really get into the I guess the point, how not to start a damn brewery and, and what happens yeah. when we <laughs> when we all start up, including me. <laughs> so you guys have this plan. You're going to pivot. Obviously, it's going to take some money. Clearly, it's going to take a lot of time and effort. But, you know, you feel like it's the solution to the problems and that that's what's going to work going forward. And somewhere between there and today, uh, it didn't happen. So did you guys look for space and weren't able to find it? Like what happened? Like, how did it go? I mean, originally, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we only wanted to be in that space for a couple of years and then move into a new space. The idea was always to grow and get into a bigger space and after offering. So we got to a point where we were ready to go, ready to do this, work with some investors. And then burnout is what, you know, everybody wants to talk about, I feel like now. But it, it's also can be super real. Oh, it's legit. So we got to a point. <laughs> It's definitely legit. And I, that's not, I'm not saying it's not valid that people talk about it. It's 100% legit. And that's, that's probably the easiest way to boil down, like, what happens on top of other things. So we were working with some investors, and we started looking at properties. The real estate market is 
crazy. And then what we're looking for, because we're trying to spend as least amount of money as we could. So we have to raise a little bit, you know, less and keep hold on to more of the brewery. It got down to like, there just was like nothing immediately available in the whole like Cedar Park area. There's some places like, oh, this place is available, but yeah, there's daycare next door. Or, oh yeah, this place is available, but there's literally no outdoor seating, so you're only inside and the parking sucks. And, or if there's just all these little things, and I was really not at a point where I just want to like go for it and just do it if I didn't think it had a good shot. So I've been doing this, like, I'm so tired. I don't want to, like, do a space that we have to fight against the space. So I was really trying to find a spot that I'm like, okay, this can work, and these are why I think it'll work. So after about four months of looking, the only spots that were becoming available were, like, six months down the road. This spot would be available for us to then build out. And so it was going to be a year, year and a half before we could get the next space open. That was earlier, this is, like, April, May of this year in that time frame, maybe a little bit earlier. I was just kind of like, it started like dawning on me. I was just like, okay, so if this is going to happen, it's not going to happen for another year. So I have to keep this going. I have to keep doing this. And then I have to go start a whole new space. And I was just like looking at it. like, I'm never going to get a day off. I'm so tired already. Even if in the plans to hire people and have managers and like people running the tap room, it's just like starting up. It's like that whole process is just incredibly time consuming. Then talking to, you know, other brewery owners around town kind of seeing what their lives look like. It's the stage that I wanted to get to. Okay, well, if we have a space like that, then, you know, maybe I'll be able to, like, get some time off. Or if we have a space like this and then talk to people, I'm like, this sucks. This is terrible. Like, And so it got to a point where it was just kind of like, you know what? And another aspect of it, too, is just, like, you know, starting with my brother and then kind of having to take a step back. That took a lot of, like, you know, just kind of like, oh, well, now I'm just doing it by myself, which also wasn't the plan. That coupled with just, like, being crazy amount of burnout where yeah i just felt kind of like a zombie walking around all the time i'd go home was like barely able to like muster enough energy to just like be a decent partner and like contribute to our lives you know what my life outside of the, the brewery and just looking around just like okay well i've been doing this for five years it's been great i've loved it but also it's not sustainable like this is not sustainable lifestyle this is not what i want my life to be it's just doing this just working all the time and constantly stressed yeah i don't think my anxiety has ever been as high as it has been the last like years it got to a point in yeah may june of this year where i was just like i'm i'm gonna go and call it quits like can't keep doing this trying enough band-aids to keep the business going eventually it's like you know when you put too much paint on a wall and it all just falls <laughs> off it's like <laughs> that's kind of the point i got to it's like i've been troubleshooting ways to keep this float afloat and like work on the next step and just like keep things moving for like five years i know people that longer but for me i got kind of reached my point where there were too many layers of paint on there. And it was just like, it's, it's all falling down. So I told our investors in June of this year, I was just kind of like, guys, I'm not, I'm not, can't do this. How did that so, conversation uh, go? Was it hard for you to get to that point to be able to face them with it? To be able to face them with it wasn't as hard. One of the guys was a friend and he's like, very, like they were all, they're both very understanding. But it was working with too many investors. They were definitely especially one of the guys super disappointed and try to convince me, no, dude, but we can, we can make it work. No, but what about this? But what if we do this? Like, that's all I've been doing for the last five years. What about this? What if we do this? What if we right. do this? Work? Yeah. And if we do this, it'll work. But what if we do this? We just need a little bit more money. Can we, yeah. And then we get this problem solved. So that wasn't like incredibly tough talking to them. It was, it was all right. But announcing it to the general public, that was way harder than I thought it would be for sure. That was, uh, that was a lot. How did you guys, or did you as a group decide, or was that on you? Because everyone closes differently, and I yeah. talk about this a lot. Like, there are definitely some breweries that ride off into the sunset. In fact, one by you, I reached out to and was like, hey, 
whatever. I heard you guys were not business. And they like, didn't even post anything. And he's like, I'm not talking about this. Thing. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's all, obviously, you know, there's a ton, shit ton of emotions going on. Yeah. And no one's going to tell you how you should or shouldn't behave, but it's not an easy choice. So how did you decide to have a party and have it be a thing as opposed to just rip it and get the hell out? Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to just like, we built up a lot of connections with people having the tap room. And I was working the tap room every weekend. So I'm not only like making beer, but also serving it talking to people and so there there were too many relationships that had gone from customers to actual friends to just be like peace guys we're out like it's over and like i was very proud of what we done and so yeah like we made the choice to close because it's what you know what i needed to do what we needed to do like that was where i was at in my life but it wasn't because i hate the business and i hated the job and i'm not proud of what we made so really wanted to just like kind of celebrate so that was our, our whole plan for the closing party try to make it the least bad as possible and just like try to have a good time and make a couple more beers celebrate and go out with the band so yeah it's like through the whole process it was just always being too stressed out to enjoy the little win and so i kept having to remind me over the last you know, like five years like oh no this is really cool take a breath <laughs> regardless of what happens after this this happened that was awesome so kind of just having like that mindset of this has been really tough it, i mean it was an incredibly tough decision to close like i i yeah there were there were lots of tears for me for sure but you know, I, even though I knew it was right, it's still incredibly tough because you have put so much work, time, and so much energy to like finally admit that your clothes is, is not, not easy. But yeah, I just really wanted to like have, have a party basically. Just like have people come out, celebrate one last time. Unfortunately, we did in July and it was like 110 degrees. So <laughs> it was brutal, but it was a good time. It was a good time. Did you have any, that was a lot. So during that time, typically yeah. once you announce you close, all of a sudden your tasting room triples business. Did you have any? Uh, regrets or like second second guessing your decision no okay so by the time i made the decision and announced it i was like nothing was going to change my mind people people like well i've got some money i already had investors like it's not from a lack of money like that was already yeah people all the time like well what about this well what if i raise you some more money like that's not the issue man like i'm out and people they'd like come in they're like yeah that last like three weeks before we close once we announced it's just like yeah it was it was a little nuts and people are like, yeah, see look how many people like you're here. I'm like, guys, this is not what it's about. I appreciate y'all being here. But yeah, my mind was 100% made up at that point. Well, good. Because yeah. it, it wouldn't have changed. <laughs> but so obviously there was a lot of things that were going on in your head. And, um, you know, you're yeah. going to have guilt and all that kind of stuff. One, one thing I definitely want to tell you, and I'll be curious to talk to you in like a year. I don't think it's yeah. burnout for the sake of burnout. I think it's the stress. And so even today, I can work long hours the same way and even longer. But when I get paid for yeah. it and I get rewarded, it's just different. And there's the yeah. stress of owning a brewery. It's really more the stress. And it's more the fact that you're fighting a battle you can't win. I don't think of it as burnout. I think burnout's just more when you just work too much at something that you don't like. And I don't think that's what this is. It's a very sure. different animal. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's already, yeah, so... My new job, still working a decent amount, but like when I go home, it's just, I, I'm home. Like there's nothing else. Like, like my mind is constantly stressed out. Like I have mental space back. And that was incredible. Yeah. One of the first, first, uh, days, like after we closed the brewery, I, I mean, literally still been like shipping out equipment and doing stuff with it until like this week. So now is when I'm finally going to get a real break. Yeah. Those first couple of days was just like, Oh, I'm, I'm done with work. I'm home. And I don't have any demands on my like mental space or my time. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm not worrying about like how we're going to promote something next week to get people into the brewery 
I'm not worrying about, oh, I need to make sure I reach out to this person, check on the beer at their bar. Which is like, no, I'm just, I'm just home. It was, it was an incredible feeling. <laughs> did that relief set in pretty quickly for you? Or did it take a little time? It set in pretty quick. <laughs> uh, now, like I said, though, there's like a lot of stuff I still had to do. Like we officially closed out the business in like the middle of July, but you have to ship out the equipment, have to sell everything. And, like there's a lot of other stuff closing down accounts. There's a lot of things. So it's still been very stressful up until, until basically Thursday of the, you know, into August is when we were officially out of our space. But uh, the mental space getting back was pretty immediate. And is it mostly wrapped up or is there still going to be payments and crap going forward or is it? Yeah, it should be as of basically the end of August, it should be pretty much it's wrapped up. Yeah, well, congratulations. So, I mean, it's you. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's, it's been a nightmare. Yeah, it's the end of August, on like that Thursday, I'm there like finishing doing stuff. <laughs> I was like, my advice for anyone starting a brewery is never get inventory. <laughs> Yeah. If you ever close this is the most annoying shit I've ever dealt with. That's like clearing that space out and moving stuff and cleaning stuff and shipping stuff. It was an absolute nightmare. Well, and we'll talk a little bit about where you are now, but I, I saw somewhere, I think at least some piece of the equipment followed you there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I took a head brewing position at Front Yard Brewing in Spicewood, which I'm pretty stoked about. And I brought the 15 barrel scooter with us over here. So it's my favorite piece of equipment we've we ever owned. I love that thing. So. Being able to keep that going and be able to keep using it and kind of get, you know, build up here in the next week or so, uh, it's pretty exciting. Bro. Will that be some of the old hedgehog recipes or are you guys going to start new with some front yard mixed culture stuff? Oh, yeah, I'm going to start new. Also, yeah, that's the yeast that we were using before. Like, it was all wild stuff. And you know, my brother collected when we were, you know, home brewing like eight years ago or whatever it was. So that feels like proprietary to me and my brother, mm-hmm. even though, you know, it's just not anybody can take our bottles and throw it up. But so I'll be, I'll get a different stuff over here. So we'll use some commercial. This will be like pure, like mixed culture. We'll ferment. It'll be mostly secondary in the scooter. And I'll pitch in some different strains of bacteria in there as well. It'll be quite a bit different for sure. So we'll get new beers from you at Front Yard. So if people want to come out there and try them, yeah. some, some new new creation. Yeah. Well, so give me your opinion. And uh, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but kind of, you know, from let's call it 2018 to now, you know, the industry's changed dramatically. What kinds of things do you think changed that negatively affected your ability to be a profitable business? We'll start yeah. with that question. And I got to follow uh, up. Yeah, this is a, this, I really like this topic because. This is something I've, I've been thinking about a lot. Also, just being in the industry and like watching what works and what doesn't and where things are going. I mean, I feel like we started at a time on the tail end of like craft beer mania for like specialty stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the lines, you, you know, people would still wait in lines for things. I felt like the beer there for probably five, 10 years, it felt like the beer was the most important thing. It's like, oh, you start a brewery. It doesn't matter what your space is like. Is beer really good? We'll go there. And then I feel like that, that is definitely changed feels like in the last five years for sure so get even from when we get started to where it's like yeah you can have really good beer but so does the brewery down the road so does the 1400 beers i can get from central market like there's good beer everywhere so do you have a uh, food do you have ac my kids are here do you have a spot for them do you have the game on do you have like the amenities I feel like have kind of taken over. Like, what events are you doing this month? Is there live music? It's not as much about the beer. It's like, you have to have good, like, you have to have good beer, but like, there's good beer everywhere. So, what else do you have? That, so like, that is, to my opinion, that, that seems to be like one of the biggest changes is like, there are way more craft beer drinkers now, but the like, searching out specific things and just going places just for the beer doesn't seem to be nearly as 
important. And I know you don't have a degree in human psychology, but why do you think that is? Do you think that the consumer changed or that somehow something in the market changed? I think it's uh, both. I think that there are way more... I feel like it's like the craft beer craze was great to get more people into craft beer because everybody, you know, if you're a craft beer nerd, you're making all your friends try it. And then they're like, oh, actually, this is good. But the number of people, I feel like the people who were crazy into it stand in line, you get tired of doing that. I know I did. Like, at first, you know, I just got tired of, like, waiting in line for beer. I'm like, this is stupid. What am I doing with my time in my life? So, for me personally, I was just like, okay, cool. Yeah, I did that for, like, three years. And I traded beer online. I, you know, sought all this stuff out. And eventually, you're like, yeah, is it worth it? I mean, and so that's part of it. And then I think another part is there's just like, there is so much good beer now. So it's like, oh, well, you should be like, oh, the the new Russian Imperial South, and they put vanilla in it. It's like, now, yeah, but now 1,200 breweries are producing a beer fairly comparable to that one. So I feel like the the specialty aspect of it, of like, the, oh, this brewery does it way better than everybody else, also seems to have changed. So like the quality of beer across the board has gone up. There's not as much need to go find this one specialty thing because I feel like it's hard to have specialty beer anymore because everybody can do it. So you just wandered right into one of the next arguments that I have with people all the time is that uh, I haven't heard anyone that doesn't have an opinion one way or the other on this one. Either too many breweries is a bad thing or too many breweries is a good thing and or that we have a tremendous amount of runway left and so when I started there were like not even 2,000 breweries I think in the United States now there's almost 10,000 and I've heard people say that we should have 12,000 and it's just we don't have enough and I completely disagree with that but I'm curious what your opinion is Uh, for me I feel like we could probably the numbers like how many is maybe not as important or it's as like what type we can't have 12,000 breweries trying to distribute mass amounts like that doesn't make sense there's only so much store space but can we have more small breweries in neighborhoods that like do really well and are busy all the time and are replacing bars sure we could probably have a lot more of those does your city allow that though like in Austin that's really tough with zoning laws and stuff I feel like yeah there was a boom and then like we had a bunch and then it like People got into it because you can make money, or you thought you could make money, just if you sold good beer. And then it's like, oh, well, we went into it underfunded. Those people came in with way more money. Now they got all the space high, like stuff going on. So now we're going out of business because we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the space that other people do. Or we just went on a model that doesn't work for us. Like if you're just trying to distribute, you got to distribute a shit ton of beer. It's really hard to get into the distribution games as a startup. Yeah, there's just like, there's a lot of ways you can do it that don't work. So whether or not we have too many or too little, I don't know. But we definitely have too many for everyone to be doing the same thing or trying the same model thing. Well, I think you added something to the conversation that I don't know if anyone has specifically said before. Is that You can do a bunch of small regional or neighborhood breweries, but they are going to replace a bar or restaurant. Like there's no, there's no way to just add 2,000 more breweries to the infrastructure, oh, like not no. replace the b- pizza beer pub down the street. At some point, there's only so much beer that can be drunk, right? I know people like to think that's yeah, not yeah. true, but <laughs> No, it's 100% true, yeah. And that's why, yeah, it's like, I feel like now more than it, you know, yeah, there's bars everywhere, the breweries everywhere. So, like, I feel like now it's like marketing, it's strategy, it's many, it's like those things are having to come into play in the craft beer industry where 10 years ago, I don't think that really matters as much. Yeah, you just got to be a brewery, make some good beer, figure it out. People will come, it'll work. And like, I don't feel like that's the case. Yeah, no, I agree. But what do you, yeah, what do you, what do you, 
what are your opinions on that? Which part? How many breweries? And are there too many? My honest opinion is that if you look at the numbers, and I'm just taking the macro like overall perspective, somewhere around yeah. 2017 is when it changed. We have more crappier drinkers today. That's empirically true. But from 2010 to today, we only have double which isn't a lot of growth considering that we 5x the number of breweries. So it was 2015 yeah. is when it turned where the, the most market share per brewery of people drinking, whatever, it was the, the most profitable overall. So I think legitimately yeah. it was somewhere around six or 7,000 is where we should have stopped. We didn't. We're not going back. But that's going to be a problem. So Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because, yeah, there's lots of like, I feel like there's lots of opportunity in like small towns, underserved areas. Or like, you know, local breweries. Well, and, and there's still a lot of people doing it wrong. So there are definitely places, like yep. you said, in my opinion, if you open a brewery today and you don't have food and you don't have spirits, you don't open. Like, it, not in the city. You can do it in a small town. Yep. But again, you're leaving yourself vulnerable because if some badass bar comes across the street and they have a shot girl, their margins on that are going to make it so they don't have to make their margins on beer. And then they're able to make their yep. margins on Bud Light, which we can all shit on all day long, but is this extremely profitable product to have on your tap line. I think that us trying to compete against bars changes the dynamic in a way that guys like you and I don't want to do. There are people that do and they'll be profitable, but you know, you weren't going to put Budweiser on at your place, but I bet you would have made more money if you did. <laughs> uh, for sure. If we're going to do it, though. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's not, not necessarily the wrong answer, but just that's sort of the, the idea. Like, we're here to try to figure out, like, what can work and what can't. So, to that yeah. end, if you could go back in time, would you open yeah. again? So, I think part of it is, like, the hubris aspect of it. Like, oh, yeah, if the pandemic didn't happen, we could have made it because that's when, like, I kind of threw everything off for it. But realistically, I wouldn't take back what we did, but I would not today be like, hey, this is the situation. Would you do this? I'm like, absolutely not. Like, there's no way. Yeah, no way. There's definitely part of me that's like, well, we could have done this. And if this didn't happen, then I wouldn't be in this position. And I wouldn't be on the podcast. But <laughs> uh, Well, if you had done it very right and you had been the most successful, you'd still be on the podcast because I'm looking for that guy too. Or girl, to clarify. Sure, sure, sure. What do you want people to remember? Like, what is the legacy? What is the positive that uh, Hedgehog had on the world? And what do you want us to remember it by? Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to figure out how serious for Billy to be here. I would like to be known as one of the probably the best barley wine makers in Texas. That's, that's, I feel like we were there. I feel like we made some of the best barley wine out there. But that's also a very niche style. And I'm not sure what to do. Oh, I don't know. Interesting, fun, approachable farmhouses is probably like the legacy that I would love to like have. Like if people think back like, oh, Hedgehog, they, yeah, they made some good IPAs and they had some really approachable farmhouse stuff. They were like, yeah, we got a lot of people to drink our farmhouse that didn't like beer and didn't like that. So I feel like that's probably a legacy that I would like for people to remember. Like if I heard someone talking about Hedgehog, like, oh yeah, do you know that free Hedgehog? Like it's five years from now. That's probably what I like to do. Well, that's cool. I'll, uh, I'll keep ears and eyes open. If I hear something, I'll let you know. Um, so one last question and I'm going to let you get out of here. Yeah. What is your favorite memory of owning a brewery? Ooh, it's probably tasting beer from barrels with my brother and us both looking at each other being like, holy fuck, this is fantastic. Making something that like we generally were super stoked about and that like we loved and getting to share that and be like, oh man, oh man, I can't wait to release it. And just being super, super stoked about something we did. That's probably, that's probably some of the best memory. Well, that's a good one. Like I said, I think that's part of why a lot of us get in the industry. And at least if you can take yeah. something away, take that, yeah. hold on to it tightly. Yeah. No one can take that away from you. Yeah. Do you mind if I like throw some advice out there and uh, whatnot? <laughs> Absolutely. Please. Just thinking through like things we did. And you, like, you asked 
these questions are, and I don't know that I feel like I've answered them to the extent that I would have wanted to, but you asked, like, would I go back and do it again? And it's like, would I go back and start a brewery again? I could be convinced to do that. Would I go back and start like you did? Absolutely not. I touched about it on it a little bit, but I feel like it's the thing that I disregard the most when we were getting started. People are like, oh, you don't want to be underfunded, plan for way more money. And I was like, ah, we'll be fine. We'll make it work. And realistically, that can work sometimes if things go smooth and you expand and you get out of your small situation bootstrapping really quickly. But realistically, I feel like that's just like trying to win the lottery a little bit. As I was like, in my mind, I'd be like, didn't like Treehouse start in a garage? <laughs> like, I think they started in a garage. And it's just like, anecdotally, this one brewery did this thing. So that's an option. If we do it well enough, we can be that, which is not very realistic and not a great way to start a business. Set yourself up for success from the beginning with actually having like everything you need from the beginning, like have not just good beer, have a space that you can actually afford, have like staff plans that actually make sense and have enough people to like don't think that you can do everything. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I made. And it, part of it was just being from underfunded. So it all kind of falls back into that for me. Because you can make a million mistakes otherwise, but if you're underfunded, then you have way less wiggle room to make mistakes and still survive. So just like being underfunded, it's like, oh, well, I'm not the best marketing person, but apparently I'm in charge of all of our marketing. <laughs> oh, I'm not the best salesperson, but I have to do all the sales now. You know, you can be decent at those, but at the end of the day, like having different people on your team you're going to start a brewery, start it with people that do different things than you. Brewing is the part I love the most. I hate running the business. So if I was going to do it again, I would be with someone who actually, like, that part they love doing, and they're really good at it. If you're looking to expand, have someone on your team who is that type of personality to work with investors, and you go out and find, like, development stuff. Like, find the people to put on your team to do it with that fill the void and the, like, the in your own, like, be realistic with yourself like what am I actually good at what do I actually want to do and where where do I need help and finding those people to do that with would be way preferable to just assuming like I did that you can just do it all yourself yeah I mean in your defense you hear that a lot and, and I did the same thing basically in the sense that uh, I ran the spreadsheet and the model just didn't support paying that staff and so we yeah. we had a salesperson for a while I needed another one, but there wasn't money because when I started doing the numbers, you're like, well, he's going to have to sell $80,000 a year for it to even be viable. And that's kind of close to break even. So if I put two, it just, you know, the output on it. And so I absolutely get where you're coming from. I think ultimately the point would be to build the model from the beginning that makes money and then figure out how how to staff it. But I get the org chart right first, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's definitely fair. Definitely fair. Yeah. You have to have the model. I guess I'm assuming you have the model that makes sense to place and then just actually make sure you have the money to make that that actual model happen. But again, in your defense, around the time when you guys opened and even with us, like you guys opened a year and a half after Funky Buddha had opened, expanded three years later, and three years after that sold for $70 million. And that's the, you know, it's like that kind of shit we all thought was possible. And it's, it isn't. Well, they got it back. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that tells yeah. you anything. Uh, Constellation's like, no, 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 we're done with it. You can have it back. I wish uh, you the, the best luck in whatever you do next, for sure. And I can't, obviously can't thank you enough for sharing the story. There's a lot there emotionally. I would think we've learned a lot. We've got a lot of new information. Personally, didn't know most of what you guys did. So I, I thought I was very interested to hear it. Cool. Awesome.
Well, thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.